Thank you for your attention last week. You can uh, return to Mark. We will be back again in the first few chapters of Mark. Last week we discussed familiarity, which can often be a good thing, but in the context of our relationship with Christ, mere familiarity can be toxic. We talked through several passages in Mark. I didn't spend time in depth And we'll do the same thing again this week. We'll read a number of passages briefly to get a sense of faith as opposed to familiarity. But last week we saw how some people who were merely familiar with Christ wanted a temporary escape. They wanted a spectacle, something to shake their week up and make them feel good. Some of the people who viewed Jesus and his great miracles and teaching. Some familiarity wants some aspects of what Christ is offering, but wants to maintain control. Those were the Pharisees, the other religious leaders, who they liked when Jesus talked about righteousness. They liked when he talked about respecting the law, respecting the Old Testament. But they didn't see themselves as sinners in need of a Savior. They thought they could handle it on their own. And then we saw finally that some familiarity wants to be comfortable wants what it knows, and it breeds contempt for those outside the boundaries. Those were the friends and family members that Jesus grew up with in his hometown, in his home region. They reacted very negatively to the message that Jesus brought, to his miracles. And remember, Jesus marveled at their lack of faith. And I don't know if you remember, but last week we saw how every single one of these groups at one point or another, said, Who is he? Who is this man? Where did he get this teaching from? At the core of familiarity, rather than faith, is confusion about the identity of Jesus Christ. The true nature of who he is and what he demands. What he came on earth to do can be a little bit discouraging as we look at familiarity. You may have seen yourself in that. You may have seen friends, family members, neighbors, co-workers, people who are familiar with some of the gospel message, but there's no faith. Thankfully, Mark goes to great lengths to also describe what true saving faith looks like. And we're going to look at several passages this week, people who broke through whatever barriers were in their way to get to Jesus, because they had a faith that compelled them, a faith that wasn't their own. They didn't just come up with it, but it was something that moved them to the Savior. So let's look, first of all, at how saving faith can come unexpectedly. We'll say it comes unexpectedly sometimes. It breaks through your expectations, my expectations. It sometimes frustrates perhaps what we thought. Faith comes through unexpectedly, in unexpected places. I'd like to look, first of all, we spent a little time in this passage last week, but at chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, it's a really remarkable passage. It says, A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, 
the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. This wasn't unusual. Crowds followed Jesus wherever he went. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Sounds like they went right to Jesus, but the next verse said they had to find another, another route. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. Just a couple of facts about Palestinian homes at that time. They had first wood beams that overlaid. Then they would put things like flax, palm branches even, hay down on top of the wood. Then they would actually plant a garden, more or less. They would put a foot of dirt on top of that for insulation to keep the rain out. And frequently, these people would plant gardens on the tops of their houses. <laughs> yeah, green indeed, huh? But, so, one commentator pieced through the data and estimated it was two feet of debris that had to be cleared for them to hack their way down to Jesus below. And I just imagine myself, one of the people who actually got into the house, and all of a sudden there's dirt coming down. What, what, what is out there? There's the debris rained down, not just for a minute, but probably for a few minutes as they cut their way through and then lowered their friend down. Faith can come unexpectedly. In this case, it was unexpected because literally nobody saw it coming. All of a sudden, the, the, the roof is giving way and these men are lowering someone down. They broke through the obstacles in their way because of their faith. They wouldn't have done that if they thought, well, maybe Jesus will help us. No, they knew he could, and they trusted that he would. They, weren't, they didn't care about embarrassment. They didn't care what anyone in that house thought, because they had a higher priority. It was to see the Savior. And if we read through the rest of that passage, you could see that Jesus looks on them and on the invalid and sees faith. And the first thing he says is, Son, your sins are forgiven. Remember, that was what set off the spiritual leaders who were listening to that. But Jesus wanted to make clear, I see your faith. The demonstration, that's great, but I see the faith inside your heart. It was a faith that persevered, that didn't care about what else was going on at that particular moment because those friends and that invalid knew Jesus is the only answer for us. So then look at chapter 5. Friends in chapter 2 broke through physical obstacles to reach Jesus. But we see in chapter 5, verse 21... Through 43, two different examples of how true saving faith, as opposed to just mere familiarity, actually breaks through peer pressure to reach Jesus. It has no heed for the demands of other people when Christ is in front of them. I'm not saying we disrespect other people or we hurt other people, but we serve God rather than men. 
And that's what these people in this chapter understood. We see, first of all, a synagogue leader named Jairus in verse 22 came and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. That says Jesus went with him. This man was a synagogue leader. He wasn't on the level of a Pharisee, but he still had a reputation to uphold, you might say. He was someone that people looked to in that little community. And for that man to go on his knees to the visiting rabbi, it didn't look good. I'm sure the supervisors, the priests, the Levites, the Pharisees looked at him and said, hmm, I'm not sure his term's going to be renewed next time. Well, now we know where your heart is. Now we know where your allegiance is. Your son gets sick and the first thing you do is go to this rabble rouser? But Jairus didn't care. He was desperate enough to realize, to trust that Jesus, again, was the only answer. As the story continues, we'll skip a few verses here. As the story continues, in verse 35... Some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they had said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. Don't be afraid of what? Don't be afraid that you're going to cause a scene. Don't be afraid that you inconvenienced me for nothing. Don't be afraid that when we get there and your daughter is dead, I'm just going to tell you, sorry, I can't do anything, Jairus. That's what the people from his household thought. As you continue down, Jesus saw people crying and wailing loudly in 39. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. Ah, there's their unbelief. There's the heart's that said, well, we can accept that you might be able to heal someone who is sick, but raise them from the dead? <laughs> no, that's too far. <laughs> no, I, I, I've seen you heal some, some people with broken legs, some people who might, may or may not have had a demon possession, but no, death is final. You don't have any control over death. That's why Jesus said to Jairus, don't fear, only believe. And the miracle occurred that Jesus told the little girl, get up. She stood up and began to walk around. A 12-year-old girl whose life had been snuffed out, Jesus restored it to her, restored it to Jairus and to his family. Terrific miracle. People were completely astonished. And I'm amazed at the faith of someone who had heard for months probably from his spiritual superiors Don't listen to that Jesus. He's a troublemaker. He doesn't follow the authority of the the priests and the teachers. He's just a, a lone wolf teaching people whatever he wants. But when his son or when his daughter was sick, he went to the teacher on his knees. He broke through peer pressure to reach Jesus. But then also, look, in between there, you might even think this is just an interruption an intrusion into Jesus' schedule. Verse 25 says, A woman was there 
who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Some type of hemorrhaging disease. You have to note that not only would this have been draining physically, draining financially, but she wouldn't have been welcome at the synagogue. She was ritualistically unclean, according to passages like Leviticus 15. So this is a woman who, unlike Jairus, Jairus was at the top of the world as far as his local community. He was a leader in the synagogue. This woman, maybe she had money in the past, but it was long gone. Maybe she had prestige in the past. It was gone too. She was a shell. And she was desperate. So she didn't care that she might be shamed in that crowd. She didn't care that Jesus might look at her and say, what's your problem? Get away from me. You don't have an appointment. She went and she said, if I can just grab the hem of his garment, I will be healed. And sure enough, that's what happened. And of course, it didn't surprise Jesus. This wasn't an intrusion into his divine appointment book. He said, who touched me? Because he perceived a woman's faith. He perceived that power from God had healed her. And I give the woman credit because at that point, she, knowing what had happened to her, verse 33, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. And Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed From her suffering. It's the same phrase in verse 29. Her bleeding stopped. She felt in her body that she was freed of suffering. Freed of suffering. Twelve years of suffering. Some of you have had long illnesses. Twelve years is a long time without answers, without hope. But this woman had one hope left that Jesus would heal her. She didn't even even try to get his attention. Maybe she knew it would be fruitless in the huge crowd, but she reached out and Jesus recognized her faith and healed her. So in both the story of of this woman, unnamed, and Jairus, the synagogue leader, we see a faith that didn't care about peer pressure that had long since stopped caring what people thought. It was a faith that broke through all that to reach the only one who could help them. A true saving faith breaks through peer pressure. Not only that, but look at chapter 7. Chapter 7, 24 through 30. And I am cherry-picking because there are many examples of remarkable faith in Mark. But look at verse 24 through 30. Jesus left that place and went to the the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syria and Phoenicia. She was a Canaanite. 
she begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Another gospel makes it clear. He's talking about Israel. I came to the house of Israel first. You're a foreigner. The gospel will reach outside Israel's boundaries, but not right now. That's not my mission. But she says, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Smart woman. He says, I'm not going to take what is for the house of Israel right now and throw it away. She says, but even if I can catch crumbs, Lord, I believe that you can cast the spirit out. And then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. Another gospel mentions specifically her faith. It wasn't just her clever wit. It was the faith that led her to persist. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. We don't know much more about her other than those few verses. But there's a faith that broke through social taboos. Not just physical barriers, not just peer pressure, but social taboos. Think about how when Jesus spoke to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, she was taken aback. And this is a woman who was very comfortable around men. But even so, the fact that a Jewish man would talk to her, a foreign woman, that was scandalous. But again, when faith compels, when faith moves you to Christ, you stop caring what other people think. A Jewish man and a foreign woman did not converse openly. It was a good way to get a reputation. But this woman had the courage to approach Jesus, the text says, as soon as she knew that he was in the area. That was what she had been waiting for. Perhaps she couldn't leave her daughter. But when she heard Jesus was up here in Tyre, can you imagine the thrill that went through her heart? Maybe now. Maybe now my daughter will be delivered. Maybe she'll be freed from her suffering. And Jesus commended her faith. He was moved with compassion. And he acted on her behalf. Friends, before we go any further, true faith, if I haven't made it clear enough, breaks through barriers. It can come unexpectedly. And you and I don't have the luxury of looking at someone and saying, that person, I don't, I don't think they even speak English. I don't think the gospel's ever going to reach them. Certainly not through me. That person, he's a spiritual leader. He, he's, he's noted in the community. I, I'm not going to be able to say anything to him. That person is Buddhist. They're, do Buddhists ever get saved? I don't think I'm the right person to bring them the gospel. We can't make assumptions because the gospel springs forth in unexpected places. It draws faith and it compels people to move towards Christ no matter what the obstacles. It's exciting to see people who have ripped away the familiarity, the facade, self-reliance, familiarity with some of Christ's teachings and they come as the hymn Rock of Ages says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, 
come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That desperation is what Jesus is looking for. Desperation is the lab in which faith is born, not self-reliance. So that person that you think has it all together, they don't. That person that you think their sin is so vile that you don't even want to talk to them, they need Jesus. So let's not make assumptions. Not only can faith confound our expectations as to where it will arise, but it'll frustrate our expectations as to when it arises. And I want you to look at several passages about the disciples of Jesus. We need to see the progression here. Look at chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. These were the ones who had spent the most time with Jesus, getting special instruction. Verse 34, right before that, says, He did not say anything to the crowd without using a parable, but when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. So they had a special level of communication with Jesus. He was shaping them for the task to come. That day when evening came, verse 35, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. And there were also other boats with him, and a furious squall came up. And the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Implication being, uh, you might drown too. And it's great that you're getting some rest, but don't you see what's happening? Jesus got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet! Be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. It was so instantaneous, so unnatural. It wasn't that the storm gently subsided eventually and an hour later they were on calm waters. No, this was something miraculous. Because it says that they were terrified. They were terrified and they asked each other the same question that we saw those earlier ask. Who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Where fear rules, faith cannot dwell. They were afraid. First of all, they were afraid at the elements. They were afraid at their surroundings. Then they became afraid of this man. Who who is he? Is he... Who, who can calm a storm like that? Yeah, we've seen him do some miracles, but nothing on that scale. As we keep reading, look at chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 30, is the account of the feeding of the 5,000. But look at verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida. So it appears that Right after this incredible miracle, feeding thousands and thousands of people from almost nothing, Jesus and his disciples left. And he sent them on ahead, and he went up on a mountainside to pray. 
later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, verse 47, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Other gospels give more details. It was another storm, a serious one. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Where fear rules, faith cannot dwell. And then we see not only fear as an obstacle to faith, but just plain old hard-heartedness. Continue reading in those verses. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. It's a very interesting verse. They had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. You say, well, why, why was that? Why didn't they see Jesus breaking and breaking and breaking? They're the ones who delivered the food to the crowds. There were baskets left over. The answer is that faith is not natural. Faith is not a natural human response to the great works that God does in front of us. Their hearts were hardened. I don't know what excuses they gave in their minds. I don't know how they rationalized that. But there was something in them at this point had not trusted in Christ. We do see another gospel says at this point they were starting to worship him. They were starting to wonder, is this the Son of God at this second calming of the storm? So things start to click for them. Jesus said, I'm sorry, I'm cutting ahead of myself. Turn to chapter 8. Chapter 8. There's a progression here. There was another miraculous feeding, feeding another group of thousands of people. So now they've been able to see that twice in front of them. And look in chapter 8, starting at verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them, taking that as an opportunity to warn them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Really? You haven't seen the Pharisees opposing Jesus at every turn? You haven't seen how they undermine him, how they challenge him. And you think he's still talking about dinner? Aware of their discussion, verse 17 says, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you, not, do you still not see or understand Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? Talks about breaking for the 4,000. Thankfully, another gospel, Matthew's gospel, tells us that, yes, they actually were starting to get it. At that point, it clicked for them. Oh, he's talking about the Pharisees. The doctrine of the Pharisees is poisonous. It's like leaven that creeps in. Unleavened bread had to have none of that. If leaven got in, then that bread was unclean for the ritual worship. And Jesus is saying, the Pharisees are like leaven. 
their self-reliance, their self-righteousness, you need to watch out for that. Don't let it creep into your hearts. It starts to make sense for them. Faith begins to take root. And then if you continue through there in chapter 8, we see Peter's great confession. Faith doesn't dwell in a heart that's ruled by fear. It doesn't dwell in a heart that is hard. It does dwell in a heart that confesses Jesus as Lord and Savior. In verse 27, Jesus asked the disciples, point blank, who do people say I am? I know they don't know who I am, but who do they say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, reincarnate, I suppose. Others say Elijah, also reincarnate. And still others, one of the prophets. They say you're a dead guy, Jesus. Really? That's the best that people could come up with? But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. Lord, we get it. You're not just a teacher. You are God's sent one, and we believe in you. I'm adding a little bit, but it is clear at this point the disciples have started to grasp who Jesus was, what his mission was. Now, they didn't understand everything. They didn't understand about his death and his resurrection and the church age. In fact, we see Peter, he doesn't have perfection He doesn't have complete knowledge. In just the next couple verses, he's telling Jesus, no, no, you're not going to die, Lord. We've just come to recognize who you really are. You can't leave us now. So we still put our foots in our mouths. We're not perfect. But true faith takes over one's heart. It pushes out fear. It softens a heart to hear and believe the gospel of grace. We don't produce this faith on our own. And I'd point you to Hebrews 12 too. It says, Jesus is the author or pioneer or perfecter of our faith. The, uh, the pioneer or founder and perfecter of our faith. You don't come up with this faith. It's something that God grants to you so that you can believe the message. So don't think that Peter and the disciples finally figured it out because they were smart because they'd spent enough time with Jesus that, like by osmosis, it soaked into them. No, they had familiarity as the facade in front of their faces for a long time until faith broke through and captured their hearts for good. Friends, faith may take a while. You may have a friend or family member that you say, you know, I have witnessed to them so many times. I have given them the gospel. I've invited them to church. And you know, I'll, I'll, get, I'll get some hope because they seem interested. And then they turn their back on me. We all have people like that. But faith can take time. It can confound our expectations as to where it arises We learn not to make assumptions that way. But it can confound our expectations because we want it to happen now. My brother, for example, I want him to come to Christ right now. He grew up hearing all the same truth that I did. 
but there is no faith. So I don't pray, God, help him to figure it out. I pray that the Lord will turn the light on for him, who is otherwise in darkness. Faith can take time. We need to have patience because it had took time with the disciples. We don't just figure out our salvation. And we see sometimes those people that you are witnessing to or perhaps people that you know that you think are Christians and they show some signs of faith but ultimately it's less than true faith. And I want you to finally look, go back to chapter 4. Verses 1 through 20. Chapter 4, 1 through 20. Saving faith confounds our expectations. It can sometimes take a long while. And third, saving faith can be imitated, sadly. It can be misrepresented. This is the parable of the sower. I won't read the entire thing, but let's hit the highlights here. Jesus taught them many things by parables, and his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up, and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. The disciples needed, they needed a little bit of explanation. And he went on to tell them, Sometimes the gospel falls on a heart that is completely unprepared to receive it. No interest in the gospel at all, and you don't even see a shred of hope come up. But in the other three cases, something does spring up. Something arises. And perhaps the temptation, I know for me and maybe for you as well, is to see some hopeful sign spring up in someone's heart. Wow, that that person stopped smoking. I think they might be a Christian now. That person came to church with me. You know, no, that person has been reading their Bible. They've even started getting, asking about what ministry they can get involved with at the church. We see something spring up, and it excites us, as it should. And my question to you is, if Jesus was telling us that when true faith springs up, it can also fall away, then why, do we, why are we so surprised when people fall away from the truth? Why are we surprised when something arises in someone's heart and then it withers? And they go their way, have no relationship to Jesus at all. And you say, man, that's discouraging. Did the gospel fail? Are, are, they, are they still saved somehow because they prayed that prayer once? We're all hard-hearted rock gardens. It's not that that soil itself was somehow better than the other soil. It's merely that the gospel took root but died because it was never really there to begin with. It lacked 
faith. These are instances of familiarity, folks. Except for the fourth one, of course, that bears a crop. They hear the word, they accept accept it in verse 20, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, and some 100 times what was sown. People are like the ground. It's not because the ground is better. It's because God's word breaks into a person's heart showers them with his grace and enables them to respond through faith that came from him. Real faith can be counterfeited, perhaps even unknowingly. I'm convinced that a lot of people are laboring under the misapprehension that they really are saved. They, th- they think they are because they're a good person, perhaps, relatively speaking, because their family members have been church members for as long as they can count, because maybe they gave up a bad habit or two, because they don't hit their kids and their dad hit them, so they think, well, I'm improving, right? My dad hit me, but I just yell at my kids, so that's, that's an improvement, right? We need to have our eyes open, friends. We need to be people who don't take things for granted. Stop assuming Stop assuming, first of all, because someone seems so far from grace that they'll never believe. Stop assuming that just because someone comes on Sunday or that coworker knows the right things to say or somebody gave you a Christmas card that said, God bless you, stop assuming if there's no fruit there. I'm not saying we go around and we stick our noses into people's lives and we sniff for any little thing that we can hold against them and say, oh, you must not be saved. But I am saying, stop assuming and start getting involved. Start ministering the gospel to people. Because, friends, the fact is, the gospel is not just something that saves you. It's not just the thing that gets you down the aisle. It's not even just the thing that cleans up your life makes you look a little bit cleaner and more presentable on Sunday morning. The gospel sustains you. It changes you into the image of Christ. Pastor Matt, Pastor Ken do an excellent job of enforcing that truth and reinforcing that truth. Let me add my voice to that. If you give the gospel to someone, if you encourage them with some aspect of redemption... It doesn't have to be because you think they're unsaved. You are reinforcing the precious truth that Jesus died for a people to make them his own, to pay for their sins, to change them into his image, to adopt them into the family of God. It's tremendous truth. And we need not to shy away from that. We need to stop making assumptions because a lot of times those people that we assume things about are merely familiar with Christ and they lack true faith. What we all need is a real, enduring, growing connection with Jesus Christ. No matter if you've professed Christ for a month or for 50 years, teaching and modeling that gospel message one to another is the most loving thing we can do. So, when we think about faith, 
remember that it can spring up in places that are unexpected. It breaks through barriers to reach Christ. Think about how it may take longer than you want, so be patient as God does his work on someone's heart. And then remember that faith can be imitated. So we need to give the gospel to ourselves, to each other, over and over and over again. It's been said that the way that they train people to look for counterfeit money, I'm not sure if this is still the case, but back in the day at least, the way they trained them to look for counterfeit bills was not to show them the difference between a real dollar bill and a counterfeit. They didn't even just let them handle the counterfeit bills. They would force them to handle the real bills for hours upon hours upon hours upon hours. They knew the real McCoy. And so when a counterfeit came their way, it was very obvious, that's not right. That's not correct. I know what the truth is because I've spent a lot of time in it because I've rehearsed the gospel to myself, to others, over and over and over again. We know what faith looks like, we know what familiarity looks like, and we can help each other. Familiarity versus faith is a deadly serious battle. Let's not take anything for granted as we minister the gospel one to another. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the word of God that pierces through our misconceptions, pierces through the notions that we have and forces us to take a deep look at ourselves, at others, according to the truth that we read in it. And I pray, Father, for those in this room that you would galvanize us, that you would move us with compassion as Jesus had to reach out to those around us, those perhaps, Lord, who we've never given the gospel to, even those, Lord, who have made a profession of faith, help us to encourage one another to love and to good works and to drive each other on even so much more as we see the day approaching. Thank you for your never-failing love for us. May we, in turn, have that love for each other. In Jesus' name, amen.